Well, I think we need to be convictional. I think we need to be very clear about what it is that we're saying. Uh, and we need to push back, as Flannery O'Connor uh, would put, would say, against the spirit of the age. But we do that in a particular way. We do that in the way that Jesus did, which means that we see that our ultimate goal is not to win arguments. Our ultimate goal is to win people, and our ultimate goal is to press the gospel. So we, we preach a message, as Carl Henry used to put it, of both justice and justification, and we keep both of those two things held together. So the people that we're arguing with in the public square, and we do argue, we do debate, but the point is to persuade. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're not going to be able to persuade the person we're talking to right now, uh, but we're able to persuade people who are overhearing this uh, this conversation about whatever it is, about life, about marriage, about uh, the cultural fabric, about whatever. And ultimately our goal is to press the gospel. So we never stop short of the gospel. There's always that message that freedom uh, and reconciliation with God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So we see ourselves as evangelists as well as advocates and advocates as well as evangelists and those two things must go together. You are listening to an interview with Russell Moore, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, in an interview about how we as Christians should engage with culture. This is such an important question for Christians to ask ourselves, because right now the heart and soul of our nation is being transformed before our eyes, and unfortunately, many of these changes are antithetical to certain biblical and traditional values we have shared for centuries. So if we are to follow Jesus' command in the Sermon on the Mount to be salt and light of the world, how do we do this as Christians on a cultural and social level in America? Or to quote one of the greatest Christian thinkers in this arena, Francis Schaeffer, we should ask ourselves his famous question, how then should we live? These are great ideas we are going to explore today on this week's episode of Christians You Should Know. Our guest today is nationally syndicated Christian talk radio host Steve Noble. He joins the podcast today to talk about the importance of having an approach to engaging with culture in a public marketplace of ideas. Let's dive into the interview and learn more about how Steve makes an impact. Steve, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? One banana. One banana? One banana on the way here. That was it. That's it. I was too busy. Sometimes I eat breakfast and sometimes I don't. Okay. Sometimes I make breakfast for our 23-year-old daughter, Amelia, who's still living at home until she moves to New York City. And we did Whole30 together. Okay. Which, when we moved to this house we're in now back in October, and she's got uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is this really challenging condition for a woman. And so she decided to do Whole30. Uh, because uh, health and, and weight can be a real challenge when you have PCOS. So it's Whole30 is really difficult. You basically eat like a, I don't know, a grazing animal. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'll do it with you. So I did. And uh, I lost too much weight. You asked me about my metabolism. So I got down, Ethan, to like 168 Ooh. in about 30 days. I haven't weighed that since middle school. That I know. That's what I, I hadn't weighed that since high school. So I, I temper back. So some break, some mornings I have breakfast, we'll make eggs and bacon or eggs and sausage because she's fine with that. That's Whole30. And other times I just don't do it. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, I'm hungry. That can happen to me. My brain's a little scattered. Yeah, absolutely. So 
for those who don't know you, I'm sitting in the studio of the Steve Noble Show. How did Steve Noble get to the Steve Noble Show? Tell us the story, how you got to here. And I know it's a long one. <laughs> All right. So you could, let's separate this into two different silos. Okay. You have the silo of Steve Noble's personality type, which began before the foundations of the world, right? There's predispositions. God makes predispositions in people. And I was raised in a family where uh, your ability to handle yourself vocally was very important because we gave each other a, a lot of crap and uh, very aggressive environments, bold, outspoken. You knew everybody's opinion. So you you kind of grew up that way where we were all pretty good uh, communicators. We moved a lot of this. North Carolina is my eighth state that I've lived in. So we had to be good communicators. You're switching schools and doing all that kind of stuff. And that happens to you when you're a little kid. So that kind of boisterous, outspoken personality was there. Then in 1994, when my wife, Gina, and I got saved, we were married in 92, saved in 94. Then you get the combination of who I was already, uh, plus then a growing faith in Jesus and the sanctification that hopefully goes along with that. And then you blend those two things together, and now you have just kind of a loud, obnoxious person who's <laughs> trying to do things for the glory of God and... Uh, Became an activist, kind of a Christian political activist in 2004 here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And because of my ability to communicate and, and being bold and not being afraid to be in front of a crowd or whatever, then that kind of took off. And I'm the last of four kids. I have red hair, so I'm just always looking for trouble. And um, so we became a big fish in a small pond. Did a lot of media where I was on the other side of the microphone being interviewed, radio, television, print media. And then um, that got the attention of the Epperson family out of Winston-Salem, who started Salem Broadcasting, and Stu, little Stu, Jr., uh, who's six, seven or six, eight, whatever his dad is, too. They're like two gazelle or two <laughs> giraffe walking around the Christian radio world. Uh, he bought a station here in Raleigh, North Carolina in 2005. They started to hear me speaking and stuff. I was a guest on Stu's show. He had me guest host once. And then one day in uh, late 2007, he and his dad were both like, Steve, you really should be on the radio. And, you know, you don't, okay, thanks. That's not, that sounds like a compliment. Thanks. I appreciate that. But you don't like, hey, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to decide next week I'm going to be on the radio. So I'm just going to get on the radio. That doesn't happen, except in Christian radio, Ethan, because you just buy your way on. Uh, and so that's what happened in November of 2007. Call to Action this week started, which was on Saturdays, uh, and I did that for three years. That was starting in 2007. After about, I don't know, two months on the air, Stu Jr., who had his own uh, daily talk show from 4 to 5 p.m., which is the slot I have now, he bought that slot on Sirius Satellite Radio, so Sirius XM, on the Christian Teaching and Talk Channel, which I think was called Family Net at the time or something. And, and he, that was a pretty big buy for him. And then they gave him two bonus hours on Saturdays. So he resold one of those to me. So after about two months on the radio, we were all over North America. It was crazy. And, and it fit like a glove. I could People that had known me for years, even people that knew me before I became a Christian, when they found out I was doing uh, Christian radio and radio in general, they were like, oh, that figures. <laughs> so there you go. I, that's probably the shortest version I've ever given. So... Now, from Call to Action, now it's the Steve Noble Show. Tell us about the reach, what reach you guys have, what impact you're making, how many listeners. 
We are on um, we're on about 28 stations, uh, terrestrial radio. Most of that's here in North Carolina. We used to be on in 13 states, but really felt the Lord. It was really difficult because I, I started in 2004 as an activist in North Carolina, specifically here in, in the Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill area. And, and so that was very locally focused. That was our Jerusalem, our Judea. But once radio started to grow, syndication started in 2016. I went daily in 2011. So we're I've 10 years now doing daily radio. Uh, which is hard to believe. But then syndication in 2016, we ended up being on in 13 different states. But I was always, Ethan, I was always kind of bridging back and forth between national stories and national interests versus things going on in my own backyard. And if I do too much North Carolina, people listening in Indianapolis are going to be like, why am I tuning into a Raleigh, North Carolina radio show? So there was a lot of tension there. And I, and, uh, as an activist, when I just started putting all my time, and I believe the Lord called me to that, into radio, then that kind of left a, a hole in the kind of the activist world here in North Carolina. And that kind of bugged me. So about two years ago, uh, and then another friend who's a marketing person just approached me and, and we were talking on this subject. He didn't know I was struggling with it. And he said, well, maybe it's Steve, maybe it's time that you need to bring some of that stuff back home. And that phrase really stuck with me, bring it back home. So you're on my board, full disclosure. And that's when I came to you guys and said, yeah, I think we might need to pull everything. We're spending a lot of money outside the state. I think all of our financial support comes from here in, in North Carolina, specifically here in our own town. And uh, and, I've, and I I don't think I can be all things to all people. So I'd rather be a laser than a shotgun. And then we pulled back from the other states. So we, we cover the three major markets in North Carolina. We're on it here in the, what we call the triangle, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, down in Charlotte. And then over in what we call the triad, Greensboro, Winston-Salem, High Point. Over in Asheville, which is the San Francisco of the Southeast. We're in Columbia, South Carolina. We're in a couple other states still that are really reasonable, so don't worry about it. But that's the reach with terrestrial radio five days a week. That's uh, local. That's live from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern time. But we're also on Facebook Live and now YouTube Live at the same time. So you have the terrestrial reach, which is almost impossible to tell how many people in Christian radio because Christian radio stations don't subscribe to Arbitron. Arbitron is the one that does the radio rankings. We'll tell you your cumulative numbers for a week, but it's mega bucks. And so little these little Christian radio stations don't do that. If I had to guess based on call volume, I'd say I probably have 10,000 listeners a day would be my guess on the radio. And then Facebook reach on an average week, we'll have uh, about 10,000 to 20,000 views on the show. And then YouTube, we just started. So I don't know that one yet. So it's a significant reach. It's not, it's not mega. I'm not out there with the big guys making the big bucks. If I wanted to do that, I wouldn't be in Christian radio, but, uh, but it's significant. And the reality is, and the weight of it is I, I talk to more people in a week than probably 95% of pastors in America. So that I don't say that to be self-indulgent. It just reminds me of the weight of what I do, that there are a lot of people talking. And I don't often hear about impact. You asked about impact, but just yet last night I was at a little dinner function with some pastors and a pastor's wife said to me, uh, by the way, Steve, I just want you to know that your, your radio show is making an impact. My brother-in-law, who's not a believer, but is a conservative, uh, unbeknownst to me, has been listening to your show for a while. And he came to her and said, hey, I want you to check out this podcast by this guy named Steve Noble. He's a conservative, but he's a Christian too. I thought you'd like that. And, I, and I'm listening to it. I listen to it all the time. And she's like, Nobody, he's never shown any interest in anything Christian. And you know me well enough, Ethan, you're not going to listen to my show for more than 10 minutes and not know that I'm a Bible thumper. So stuff like that. God gives me enough of that. So I know he's working and using the show, but not so much that I pat myself on the back. It's a, it's an interesting relationship that I have with the Lord on that. 
Listening to a guy like Steve who has thousands of listeners and followers and whose job it is to give his opinion on topics and controversies every day, it's so refreshing to hear how grounded he is in his perspective. If more figures in media and politics and culture could have this posture and strike the humble balance of taking seriously the influence God has given you while reminding yourself that it's all a gift from God, then I think we would have a less toxic, divisive, and self-serving public sphere. Being able to thread that needle, as we recently referred to it in one of our FTC blogs, is evidence of the Spirit's work in one's life, helping us enrich debate and conversation instead of stoking division from positions of self-importance. So I'm really thankful Steve shared his heart on that issue because it's a good reminder to all of us, not only of the kinds of influence we should be exposing ourselves to, but also the kind of influence we should be in our culture. Now, back to our interview with Steve. You addressed a little bit about the content of your show. I would put you in the genre of Christian news to Christian talk radio. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say is the laser focus of what you're trying to accomplish? What the content you're trying to convey to people who are listening? There's an overriding there's an overriding reality to Christian radio where now they do have studies on this where about twenty five to thirty percent of Christian radio listeners are actually unchurched. So I know I have people that don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ listening to the show. So my Witness to them uh, is primary. So that affects how I do radio. It affects when I share certain things about the gospel or I'll just float little things out there that I know to an unbeliever, somebody that's not in the family of faith yet, uh, that I'm speaking directly to them. I also know and have to remember that they're listening, so I can't always speak in Christian ease. So I try to make my communication what I call street-level language. So that they're out there. That's always a part of it. But the main audience, obviously, is believers, conservative believers like you and me. And my main role there is to be a bit of a spoiler. I'm there to challenge my brothers and sisters on what we're doing with our faith. And as conservative Christians in America, especially in these days, I think there's a lot of political idolatry. We, we, We lift up government and politics to a role that I don't believe the Bible would have us lifted up to. And people will put... Donald Trump on a pedestal, and they'll put Joe Biden or Barack Obama under a microscope. Well, if you're a person that's following Jesus, our job is to be heralds of the truth. And when you call balls and strikes, it shouldn't matter who's standing at the plate. So we should be as equally tough on a liberal as we are on a conservative when it comes to things that the Bible makes perfectly clear and how they manifest in the political world. So most Christian conservatives that listen to the show will regularly find themselves uncomfortable or are are feeling convicted because I I point that stuff out a lot. And mostly I point it out because it's very familiar because there's a lot of it in me. So a lot of people that, that I do hear feedback from on the show will say, I really appreciate your honesty. When I first started speaking publicly years ago, I I, somehow God just drops these little sayings into my brain every once in a while. And uh, one was always slay yourself first. So if I'm going to come in and I know I've got a message that's going to beat up an audience, I'm going to beat myself up first. I got to fall on my sword first just to make everybody realize I'm not pontificating. I'm relating. And like Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. And that's kind of how I look at myself. And so it's a delicate dance on the air because I know I'm guilty of most of the things that I'm charging other people for. (laughs) But we all need to have that conversation. I think it's healthy. Yeah, and you don't shy away <laughs> from <laughs> thanks for noticing from difficult um, conversations, and I think that's one of the things that, as a Christian and as a Christian influencer on Christian radio, 
how do you oftentimes discern when to hop into the mess? Because um, a good example, I you know I remember that when Black Lives Matter topic was going on, mm-hmm. well, you're a Caucasian, um, it's a Gen Xer. Is that? So I don't want to pick on you too bad since I'm a millennial, <laughs> but Caucasian Gen Xer, which that would have been an awkward topic, yeah. and maybe even some people would have said, Steve, you should not have an opinion yeah. on that. But as a Christian, and as a Christian who's speaking to other Christians on how they should think about these things, you stepped into that and had a conversation. So how do you deal with that tension and walk through when to say something, even something as difficult as the Black Lives Matter movement? Yeah, that's uh, I'm very active on Facebook, and a lot of people that I interact with on Facebook sometimes will get frustrated because I won't say a lot on Facebook. I'll prod a lot. I'll ask a lot of questions. I'll I'll kick the hornet's nest a little bit to see how my brothers and sisters are reacting to things that are happening in our culture. So I watch and I listen on Facebook. I explain on the radio and the podcast. So that can be frustrating for some people. But when I'm watching that and the Black Lives Matter, whether we're talking about that, we're talking about socialism, whatever, uh, you're always going to see this is a this is a frustrating and a great opportunity as I see it. I, I kind of know where my conservative Christian brothers and sisters are going to fall based on the news, based on the headlines, based on whatever's happening. I kind of know. I know what the culture expects us to do. And so we're easily predicted. Uh, it's very predictable. And But in that lies a, a great opportunity because what if you can nuance, and, and by, by saying nuance, which is a very Gen Z word, by saying nuance, I'm not talking about capitulating or compromising. I'm talking about slowing down your speech and instead of speaking in all caps, uh, speak in lowercase letters and, and calm down a little bit and wade into the difficult parts of that subject. So when you talk about Black Lives Matter, then you've got to discern, uh, do Black Lives Matter in and of themselves? Absolutely. I don't, I, you don't, I don't need to give you a nuanced answer on that. Now, I can talk about Black Lives Matter, the movement, and I can talk about Black Lives Matter Incorporated. Black Lives Matter Incorporated is wicked. Evil, Marxist, anti-God, anti-family, anti-black family, anti-man, anti-heterosexuality, anti-biblical ethic. I can go down that road all day with Black Lives Matter, Inc., who made, by the way, in 2020, $90 million. How convenient. Black Lives Matter, the movement where, hey, listen, my 23-year-old daughter went to one of those protests. My 26-year-old niece went to one of those protests. They grew up, my daughter especially, obviously, in a very conservative Christian home, and so she's going through, like our oldest son is, a little bit of a, these are like bad drivers in the South when it snows. And they're going off the right side of the road. So then they overcorrect to the left. And eventually they get the car stable and they're somewhere in the middle uh, where they're clear thinking. And that's what's going on now. So I, I realize that I've got multiple different opinions at play on a subject like Black Lives Matter. And I got to weave in and out of all of those as I go through a live one-hour radio show. Knowing I'm I'm going to step on some landmines, but as long as people understand, I'm my quest is to to explain and apply biblical truth with love and grace and compassion and patience. Then you can get away with a lot. I mean, I do several shows every year where I'll say black collars only. And then that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. See, if you're white, uh, you can't call today. I'm segregating black collars only because that's all I want to hear from on this particular. Like usually, if it's a bl- a white cop that shot a black young man whatever the circumstance, if it makes the news, then I just want to hear that raw, unfiltered, like Trump with a tweet. I just want to hear it straight from African-Americans, most of whom are going to be believers, and force my white friends on the radio, hopefully, to listen, unfiltered, and just listen, and hopefully follow up on that 
with some compassion, but also with truth. So it's a it's a challenging dance, but it's one that, by God's grace, I think I've gotten pretty good at. So, how does the gospel, as you as you take the gospel and, and interweave it into each of these difficult conversations, how do you think through that, even on the fly, of having a gospel lens as you're walking through even topics that oftentimes um, are gray? There's yeah. a gray area. Sure. The um, I'll ask other people. I had to deal with this question myself first. Who did Jesus hammer? So go back through the Gospels. Who did Jesus hammer? Meaning, who was he verbally hard on? Uh, call him out publicly, uh, to the point of shaming them. And that was only the religious leaders of the day, the big mouth, self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees. That's it. And there are people like the rich young ruler who was looking for a list to, to justify himself. And Jesus uh, gave him some things that he knew that he wouldn't be able to, to agree to. And the, and the Bible says that the, young, the rich young ruler walked away sad. And Jesus didn't follow him. You know, one other thing. Hey, hey, listen to me, you idiot. He didn't do that. He, he never compromised. He's, as you get closer to the cross, his teachings get more difficult. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, stuff like that. And the crowd started to thin. But he was never hard on your average unbeliever. He spoke a hard truth. But he wasn't personally hard on them. He blasted, excoriated publicly the religious leaders of the day, who would be our pastors and Christian talk radio hosts and people like that. And so I always remember that when I'm talking about it. And, and uh, you were once this, you were once that, you were once the other thing that we read in the New Testament. And, and I remember that as well, that, that I've got, I bring nothing to the table that's good. The only thing that's good that I bring to the table is, thus saith the Lord, what is clearly out of his word. And so that tempers you. Uh, I listened to a, a message from Tim Keller. Now, I say Tim Keller, it's what? March 2021. And I know in the last six months, in the last couple of years, Tim Keller's done some things and said some things that are going to upset a lot of people on the right, some critical race theory sound and stuff, some Black Lives Matter stuff. So I, I, I'm, this, I'm just explaining this because this is how it happens on the fly. As soon as I say the name Tim Keller, I know I've got some reaction like that out there. And I sometimes I, I ignore it, but usually I don't. And I'll say, so I would say, uh, I listened to this message from Tim Keller, who I know might be triggering some of you right now, but that doesn't, because he makes you mad in the last two years, doesn't mean everything he's ever said is irrelevant, kind of like Ravi Zacharias. So get over it for a second and listen. Now that's kind of, <laughs> you know, that's me in your face. Right. But then people are generally, if they know the show and they know me, they're like, okay, there's probably something good here. So Tim Keller in this message from several years ago that I've listened to several times said, if you're all truth and no grace, you're a bully. That was me. I know the Bible. I know the truth. But I don't administer it with any grace, so I just come across to the culture as a bully. Uh, but if you're all grace and no truth, you're a coward, you compromise, you stay away from the hard truths of the Bible because you know the culture's not going to like it. But, however, Jesus, John chapter 1, verse 14, was full of both grace and truth. Okay. Okay, that's, that's, that's not easy, but that's the bar. Get over it. And so that's what we have to try to achieve. So I'm, I'm always thinking I've got the anti-message, i got pro-message, I got conservatives, I got liberals, I got all these people listening at the same time. So I try to temper my message in terms of being loving and kind and compassionate, knowing who I'm listening to and, and knowing that I'm the chief of all sinners, that it just tempers what I do, I think. And I, I'm much more kind and loving about it now than I was 10 years ago. But that, that took time and, and Jesus teaching me that. So oftentimes the biggest beef I have with Christian talk radio hosts um, or Christian influencers are there is a low say do ratio of this <laughs> massive um, 
you should do this, but then I look in their life and I don't see them leading yeah. that. But one of the reasons why I've always loved and supported you is there is a high say do ratio. With if you are, you're one of the most out loud and proud um, pro um, pro life people I know, and because of that, there's a high say do ratio. So talk about that. Talk about that in your own life and the topics that you talk about and how it translates into the way Steve Noble lives his life. And supports those movements. Well, that's that's a, that's very challenging. I'll get to the life issue specifically in a second, but here's the challenge. And and there's conviction here because if I'm going to touch on a subject, dive into something where I know personally I'm weak as a Christian, uh, the devil will play that. That's an easy card for him to play. But Steve, are you really are you really going to talk? Are you really going to talk to Christian men and give them a hard time about uh, lust? Really? You, you realize you're a hypocrite, right? I mean, that's going on. And then, so I have to, it's very difficult, Ethan, to kind of separate myself and go, because I might struggle in a certain area, does that mean I should never say anything? I have, my, my opinion is invalid. Yes, my, my personal opinion is invalid, but what God's word says about it. So I have to be very careful there. And I don't think anybody notices it, but if there happens to be a subject sometimes, and this is where Gina, my wife will say, I think you're a little too honest sometimes on the air. I'll, I'll come right out and say, Hey, listen, I'm not pontificating to you because I'm in this particular subject. I've, I've got my struggles myself. So I'm not looking down my nose at you. <clears throat> I'm down in the gutter, uh, hopefully talking up to you. And so, but then I got a reference or have a guest on that does have that moral authority. Cause I don't, I don't feel like I have it at the time. And, uh, but on the life issue, for example, uh, when I first became an activist in 2004, I was like a lot of Christians and, and said I was pro-life, voted pro-life. But that's about it. And in this subject, I hear James saying, you show me your pro-life faith by what you say, and I'll show you my pro-life faith by what I do. I don't think I actually went, went to a pro-life event or did anything tangible other than say I was pro-life until maybe four or five years into it. And it was a 40 days for life prayer vigil. I went to a Planned Parenthood in Chapel Hill. I was late. So when I got there, the other people had left already. I was there by myself and just walked the sidewalk in front of this Planned Parenthood abortion clinic for an hour praying. And that was the first time that I actually had gone out of my way to do something pro-life as opposed to just saying it and voting it. And then God breaks your heart with that. And then you get more active. And to your point, I realize if I'm going to tell other people, you need to go do this, you need to go do that. You should be doing this. You should be that. Then I should probably be doing those things myself. Right. Otherwise shut up and get off the radio. Uh, so I like that a high say do ratio. Um, then the pro-life chickens came home to roost last fall when our now 20-year-old son and his 18-year-old girlfriend told us they were pregnant. Okay, so you, deeply disappointing for obvious reasons. And then you have to, in the moment, I'm like, okay, now we're there. We're the family around the young couple that has an unplanned pregnancy. In this case, praise God, neither one of them had any interest in abortion, praise the Lord. Neither did they have an interest in adoption. And I think that's because they knew they both had families that were pro-life, say-do people. That we say it, but, but will we actually do it? When that chicken comes home to roost in your house, because I, I asked Gina, my wife, I said, well, what do you think about adoption? <laughs> Oops. Hey, guys, if you find yourself in this situation that I'm in, and I'm speaking specifically guys meaning men, Audi, right? Not any, not up for grabs. Uh, then your wife most likely isn't going to react well to that question because she looked me square in the face, Ethan, and said, 
I can't believe you would ask to give away my grandchild. Hmm. And that's hmm. the right response. I was looking for a way out. She was walking with Jesus in that moment. And, and that was deeply convicting. And so we were like, you know what? There's the circumstances over here on my left hand. Then there's the precious life of this baby made in the image of God over here in my right hand. And those really are two different things. Learn from uh, conviction, acknowledge the fact that the pregnancy in and of itself takes two to tango was wrong and sinful. The baby is, not, is regardless of that, is a gift and a treasure and made in the image of God, formed before the foundations of the world. And... and that's a pretty high say-do ratio, mm. and it's really affected us deeply. And when we put it out on social media, finally, and you're, expe- and you're wondering how much condemnation are we going to get? We got none. Between Gina's page, my page, and our daughter's page, we got hundreds of life-affirming, God-affirming, loving, supporting messages. And, and probably anybody that was going to go negative knew that's probably a bad idea with me. But anyway, it, it's been a huge blessing. So baby Paxton... Paxton Wentworth Noble, my Clay has my father's middle name. That's Wentworth. Uh, we'll be here sometime in early June, and we're celebrating that. What's Paxton going to call you? Grandpa. 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 That's what they called my dad, Grandpa. Well, Gina, being a 100% Italian, will be Nona. That's grandmother in Italian. So she'll sound cool because <laughs> she'll be this beautiful young grandmother and Nona, and then I'll just be Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of regular. Wow, what a testament to the faithfulness of God and the power of the gospel bringing life to a broken situation. I'm so thankful Steve shared that story with us, even when I'm sure it wasn't easy for him. But it really comes back to the high say-do ratio me and Steve were talking about earlier. It doesn't take much to post a viewpoint on Facebook or to reply to a tweet or article with an opposing comment. And not only does it not take much, it also doesn't do much either. We have to take the transforming truths of the things we say we believe in and let them actually take hold in our hearts and minds so that we can make an impact in our own lives, the lives of our family, and eventually our communities and culture. We can learn a lot from Steve's story. We should let it be an example for us and how we conduct ourselves out in the marketplace as followers of Christ. But before we get back to the interview with Steve, I want to share with you a clip from a speech given back in 2012 by Tim Keller. In this clip, he shares a story about the early days of his church when a young woman started attending because of the impact her boss had on her. Let's listen to see how this follower of Christ in a position of leadership engaged culture, and in this instance, his workplace. If you have a Savior who saved you through substitutionary sacrifice, and on and on, he says, look at how you were saved, and then how does that affect the way in which you actually relate to people? Now, some of you heard this story, but I'll just say it's, I think it was 1992 when the church was very, very new, Redeemer. I remember talking to a woman after church um, who was not a believer but had been coming for several weeks, and I asked her, hey, uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, how'd you get here? How'd you find out about us? By the way, back in those days, nobody knew of Redeemer unless a friend brought you. You know, We had no building. We had no name or anything. We weren't famous and that sort of thing. And then she told me she worked for one of the TV networks, and then she gave an example. And she said that it wasn't that long ago that she'd done a really stupid thing 
Uh, she should have probably lost her job, or she could have, but her boss went to his boss and basically took the blame and said it wasn't her fault, I should have trained her, I should have done this or that, and kind of took the blame. Now, he had a pretty good standing, he had a fair amount of personal capital, and he spent some of it by taking the blame for it, but it saved her job. And when she found out about it, she came in and she said, look, I've been in this you know, dog-eat-dog New York world for a long time, and she says, I've constantly had people above me take credit for what I've done. That happens all the time. I've never had anybody be willing to take the blame for what I've done. I usually take the blame for what my superior's done. And he said, no, no, don't think about it. It's all right. And she pressed and pressed. And finally he said, look, he said, I'm only going to tell you this because you're pressing me. I'm only going to tell you this because you asked. I'm a Christian. And the reason I am as far as I know, the reason I have a relationship with God is because somebody took the blame for me for what I did. And I'm just letting it shape the way in which I operate. And she said, where do you go to church? <laughs> now, the point there is what? See, in that place, the gospel isn't just, I don't know, the gospel wasn't, wasn't shaping the way in which this person thought about entertainment, though maybe it does or maybe it should. Uh, it wasn't, in, there's something else going on here, and that is, the gospel creates a kind of transformational leadership uh, pattern in which you give credit instead of always taking it, in which you bear blame instead of always you know, making other people bear the blame, in which you lift up rather, rather than trample on people so you can get up the, up the ladder. You lift up other people instead. You don't think people notice that? Oh, they do. You could call it the ethical side of work, you know, gospel-wise. Well, I want to dive in just to one more piece. We started talking about the high safety ratio. One of the organizations you work with is Love Life. Tell us about Love Life and what you do there. All right, so Love Life's a great story. It's not dissimilar from mine because I was just running a house painting company when all this stuff started. Okay, there's Joe the Plumber back during the Obama run. I think that was 2008. Now you're listening to Steve the Painter. My word to you, listening, is whether you're a plumber, a painter, an accountant, uh, a business person, a businessman, a businesswoman, a, a homemaker, a mom, a dad, whatever you are. Made in the image of God, which gives you inestimable worth. And if, and, and if you know him through his son, Jesus Christ, then you have gifting and you have a calling on your life to make him known and to represent him well. You're an ambassador. And so if you listen to somebody like me and go, well, I could never do that. Uh, that's patently false. But God doesn't call you to be me. He didn't call me to be you. You have a unique opportunity based on your platform, your sphere sphere of friends and influence, big, small, medium, whatever it is, to do something extraordinary through the power of God. So remember that. So Justin Reeder is the guy that started Love Life. He was like me at the back in the day, just a businessman. He was running. He runs a house, a, a power washing company, a commercial power washing company. I was running a house painting company. And uh, some friends of his, who are pretty well known, the Benham brothers down in Charlotte, uh, made him aware of an abortion clinic that was literally right around the corner from his business. He didn't even know it. So they took him over there one day uh, to pray, and God broke him. Mm. And then he's like, okay, I have a say. I don't have a do. And so his say do got turned on that day. He's like, I, I have to do something. Where's the church? i got to mobilize the church. What's going on here? And so he started Love Life, and they just started to try to gather churches just to come out and have a prayerful presence at an abortion clinic uh, every Saturday for 40 weeks, an average gestation of a baby, as Ethan, as a, as a two-time dad, knows that. 
And uh, and so that's how it started. Then it's grown. It's we just celebrated five years. They're in. Um, which are adding five new cities this year, and they want to see a Christian witness outside every abortion clinic in America. There's a little over 700 of them. And so Love Life is there. There's a lot of different players in the pro-life movement. Love Life is there, kind of like the Air Force, to do literally prayer, praise, and worship and have that presence outside the abortion clinic. They do it every Saturday and uh, also uh, on Facebook Live now. So we have, like I just hosted it, the video hosting on this past Saturday, and we had... We were in like 12 or 13 different states, 23 different locations. We're jumping from Tuscaloosa to the Bronx to Raleigh down to Fayetteville, North Carolina, and up to Detroit. It's really cool. So that's just an awesome thing. That That's Love Life, lovelife.org. Show me your faith by what you say. I'll show you my faith by what I do. So if you're a say person but not a do person, now you got to be a do person. And then this is something I say on the radio. Once you have knowledge, you have responsibility. Mm-hmm. Now you know about it. Now it's up to you whether you're going to be the sin of omission, choose to do nothing, or you'll actually act, whether it's Love Life or some other group. Be more than just a professional pro-life person. Do something about it. You know, this reminds me of a quote uttered by one of the great thinkers of our time, Uncle Ben, Spider-Man's uncle. He says, with great power comes great responsibility. And while I'm partially kidding, I think the quote remains true. And well, I think the similar sentiment that Steve just expressed is equally true. Knowledge equals responsibility. Not only that, but once we proclaim these truths, then we must take responsibility for them and act. We must do as much or more than we say. Otherwise, we will be like the hypocrites praying loudly in the streets for all to hear, but who Jesus describes as whitewashed tombs, unable to transform anything because we have failed to become transformed by them ourselves. We have been entrusted with the powerful and transformative truth of the gospel, and we have been called to live it out in the world. Let's heed that calling and not only be sayers, but committed doers. This episode of Christians You Should Know is sponsored by Honest Car Payment. In a world where buying a car is often misleading and dishonoring to God, Honest Car Payment has created a redeeming way to buy and refinance a car. Just listen to Aku and Lynette's story in Hawaii as they interacted with Honest Car Payment. Aloha, I'm Aku, and this is my wife, Lynette, and we're from Kalihi. When we first bought our Nissan Frontier, we thought we had a good deal, but yet we were wrong. Our interest was 24%. We called Honest Car Payment and got a new loan right away. We saved over $18,000. That type of money is going to change our life. If your car payment is too high, don't settle. You have options. Call Honest Car Payment today at 534-1234 or visit honestcarpayment.com. And when you said knowledge, one of the things, interesting facts about Steve Noble is that you're also a teacher. And so you you teach. Um, Does God have a good sense of humor or what? <laughs> teach high school students. Um and walk us through what led you to do that and um, what two topics really you get to teach. None of these great ideas are mine. It's always somebody else's idea. So this goes, I, I taught my first uh, civics constitution class. Uh, this is my ninth year teaching it. So the very first year, that was another homeschool mom talking to my wife, homeschool mom, and saying, because yeah, I was an activist and stuff, and and Ellen is her name, Ellen Weibel. She said, uh, Gina, Steve should be teaching government a government class. Gina says, you're right. So she comes home. Hey, Steve, uh, Ellen and I think you should be teaching a government class. Well, that was a pretty declarative statement. It was almost like, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> so, okay, you're probably right. I probably should. And so I, I taught my first class 
nine years ago. Our two older kids were in it. I taught all four of our kids. That's a two-semester Constitution civics class, which most Americans are terrible, have terrible civic knowledge, and uh, teaching it from a biblical perspective. That's great. And then added Christian ethics, which is what I got my master's degree in. About four years ago, that's a real deep into the pool. The material I use for these, usually high school juniors and seniors, is the exact same material I use for my master's degree work. So that's fabulous. And then, I don't even know if you knew this, um, another class that people have asked me to teach for a couple, especially in the last two years, is U.S. history. Uh, people don't know their history, and the history that they've been taught, especially in the public school system, is not truthful. Uh, listen, America has a checkered past like the rest of us. There's there's good things and there's bad things. It all gets politicized. Very few people are willing to have an honest conversation and look at it. So this coming fall, I'll, I'm going to start teaching U.S. history. That'll be a two-semester course. Uh, I'll probably be teaching three days a week this fall. Um, that's a big commitment. It makes life challenging. But who else is teaching the next generation? Public schools, Christian schools, which have a tendency to to, to deify the founding fathers and in gloss over things. Uh, I, I don't particularly feel called to gloss over anything. So it'll be the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's still the greatest his, uh, country in the history of the world, I believe. But we have a checkered past. And, and whether you want to talk about 62 million dead babies or what we did with chattel slavery and the civil rights movement, and by the way, on this one, I'll, I'll tell people that hate America, I'll say, name for me one other country on the planet that dealt with chattel slavery by seeing 650 to 750,000 of its own citizens killed in a war against one another. Show me one other country on the planet that's done that. And they'll stop. And can you name one? No. Okay. Let me ask you a follow-up question. Does that mean anything to you? Do you give any credit whatsoever for that? Do you? And and that's probably the way I'm going to teach U.S. history, (laughs) but that'll start this fall. Well, Steve, thank you for what you do in this Christian space, stepping in and speaking when people aren't willing to speak up. Thanks for your time today on the podcast. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks. Before we wrap up this week's episode, we would be remiss if we were not only to mention but never hear from the great thinker Francis Schaeffer, who dedicated his life to transforming his culture, whether at his small community in Labrie, Switzerland, or eventually on the world stage fighting against the secular humanist spirit of the age. Let's listen to some of his final thoughts at the end of his lecture series on the history of Christianity's influence on Western society. Christianity's truth, and it demands a commitment to that truth. It means there is an infinite God who is there, and he has created all things. Things are not a product of chance. This infinite personal God has created the heavens and the earth. He has created the space-time continuum. It means the acceptance of Christ as Savior and as Lord. And when we accept him as Lord... It means that we come to live under the absolutes, the moral absolutes, which the Bible gives, even if it sets us apart, as it did the early Christians, from the surrounding culture. In this place, there are morals, there are values, there is meaning, and very specifically, there's meaning for man in this place. But we must understand that what is involved here is truth, not a truth which is a leap into an area of non-reason, but a truth that gives us a unity of all of knowledge and all of life. And then this alternative means that the people who have this base influence the surrounding consensus, regardless of the cost, 
just as the early church in the days of the Roman Empire, they spoke out regardless of the cost. It means we have a responsibility before God once we have this base to influence society across its whole spectrum and the whole spectrum of life. Listen to this quote again by Francis Schaeffer. It means we have a responsibility before God to influence society across its whole spectrum and the whole spectrum of life. What a challenging reminder for one of Christianity's heroes of cultural engagement. We have heard many times and from many sources today about our responsibility to our culture and communities, our responsibility that we have before God in light of the truth and grace we have been extended. As Christians, as faith-driven consumers, we have been entrusted with the gift of the gospel and the degree to which we let that take hold and externalize its effects in every part of our lives is the extent to which we can make a difference. It's the extent to which the FTC community can bring real and positive change to the marketplace, the workplace, and our culture. We are so thankful to have had Steve Noble on today, just as we are thankful for you, the listener. And we hope and pray you will be challenged and encouraged to engage the culture with truth and love and make an impact that reverberates into every aspect of our society. I'm Ethan Drum, and this is Christians You Should Know.